Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm here at the American Institute of Physics with Will Thomas, who is a science policy analyst. His book is called Rational Action, The Sciences of Policy in Britain and America, 1940 to 1960. And he also has a paper, The R&D Testing and Economics of Information, 1937 and 1963. Will, thanks for coming on Acquisition Talk. Thanks. I'm very pleased to be with you today. Great. So, to start us off, can you give us a little background on the rise of operations research in World War II and after? Yeah, so this is really the, the subject matter of my book. And what it has to deal with is uh, during World War II, I think one of uh, the great narratives that's never been really fully explored is the degree to which uh, the military services in uh, Britain and the United States is what I look at, but really all of them had to, in a sense, learn how to learn better um, because, of course, the problems of the war were very novel. And they had methods of uh, learning how to conduct operations uh, more successfully, uh, how to adjust to new situations, and how to develop and use uh, new technologies, which I think will be our strongest concern. So uh, essentially, uh, the way operations research got started in this period was uh, Today we know operations research is a field that's about uh, mathematics, computation, optimization, and it wasn't that sort of thing at all during World War II, and that's kind of one of the main threads in my book is how it got to be the science of operations research that uh, we uh, know today. Uh, The term operations research, or operational research as they called it in Britain, actually came from the pre-war project to develop uh, radar, or RDF as the British called it uh, at that time. And they distinguished uh, laboratory or workshop-based research from what they called operational research, which was uh, research into how you implement uh, equipment in the field once it's there, which was uh, a big problem for a technology like radar. So uh, essentially what they did was they took scientists from the labs and they sent them out to work directly with um, the, the military commands and to uh, solve problems related to specific technologies, principally radar, but they also worked on things like uh, fire control, anti-aircraft uh, technologies as well. And What uh, ultimately came of that is it turned out that their work uh, with the military commands was extremely useful. And by about 1941, they decided that really what operational research was was just conducting research into operations. So not necessarily having to do with any specific technology, but whatever problems uh, the military commanders uh, might be facing. And so by the time the United States entered the war in 1941, this was a well-established model in Britain. Uh, People among the British scientists and uh, the British military authorities were speaking very highly of it. And so the Americans started to set up these sections, these operations research sections as well, uh, first in the US Navy, then ultimately the Air Forces, uh, and a little bit in the Army. Yeah, it's interesting what you said there, that they were sending scientists and engineers into the combatant commands, Mm -hmm. well, before they were combatant commands, but into the military users, which sounds a lot like 
what they're calling for today with Agile, where they're saying, hey, look, we need this more rapid iterative feedback between the technologists as well as the, the military folk. Um, but it seems like somewhere after World War II and then until the recent decades, uh, there was kind of a stop to that or that, that, that process kind of changed. Can you describe what happened there? Uh, you know, I, I have a hard time saying what's happened in the more recent history, but the sort of thing that you're talking about, I would almost characterize it as a wartime obsession, uh, you know, because they thought, well, we need to design these technologies, but we need to design them to the actual field requirements versus what military people tell us their field requirements are. And so the only way to really do that is to have a scientist go out there and talk to people. Also, you have to make sure that it's installed correctly. You have to make sure that it's being used correctly. Uh, and ultimately, then you have to feed back into the design process to find out what problems your equipment aren't solving that might be solved on the next iteration. So <clears throat> I think that uh, you know it's difficult to say exactly when and where these things rise and fall because you know in a sense the military always has to do these things otherwise uh, nothing works at all so you know before world war ii there were things like proving grounds and you know ways of testing technologies and ways of coming up with the requirements and that's always been the case and so the question is you know what mechanisms are available so this was actually a veritable obsession during world war ii and operations research was one solution to these problems wherein you know, you had to figure out what the military's requirements actually were rather than necessarily what they said they were so that you could build appropriate equipment. And then you had to install equipment in the field. Uh, you had to train people to use it appropriately. You know, radar is not exactly a user-friendly technology at this time, so you have to train people how to interpret the signals. You have to integrate it into tactical doctrines, and you have to feed all that back to the laboratories to create the next iteration of the technology. And there wasn't um, a very set in stone way of doing this. So operations researchers did this uh, as a matter of course. Uh, there were also a couple of other mechanisms. So um, a lot of this came out of the MIT Radiation Laboratory, which was responsible for the development of a lot of the American uh, radar technologies. And uh, an electrical engineer there named Edward Bowles uh, actually went to the Pentagon to work directly with the Secretary of War. Uh, and he started sending out what were called teams of expert consultants into the field. Uh, and so that was another group, is this uh, group out of the Secretary of War's office. And then eventually, by about 1943, the uh, uh, MIT Rad Lab itself decides to set up a full-time British branch of the radiation laboratory that was based in London. Uh, and then eventually that moved to the continent uh, after D-Day. And I've actually brought along a few pages of the war diary of the second director of the British branch of the radiation laboratory. Uh, and this is from uh, April 20th, 1945. And he's actually in Germany. He's followed the American forces into Germany and he's interviewing a couple of people from the German radio technology company Telefunken. Um, after uh, they've been overrun. And so it, it's just a very interesting, evocative set of passages. And there's an interesting bit of trivia that I'll, I'll save to the end. But this is from the War Diary. So, interview with Dr. Engels and Dr. Ortel. Ortel was a good technical man. Engels concerned only with administrative features of Telefunken's operation and did little talking. The conversation was in English. 
They said that industrial companies working on radar made little effort to utilize the physicist groups. This is in Germany. Ertl explaining that these scientists did not have either the desirable training or the appropriate point of view. The scientists evidently worked pretty close to their universities or in the private laboratories, coordinated somewhat ineffectively by the Reichsforschungrat. Uh, that's the uh, German research office. The last two years, high-frequency work among scientists was coordinated by an agency headed first by Professor Isau and later by Dr. Prantl. Industry laboratories were apparently not well coordinated, but received their directive from technical members of the Luftwaffe. Just as there was a gap between the German scientists and industrialists, there was also an even greater gap between both of these in the military. It was virtually impossible for a scientist or engineer to accompany radar equipment into combat areas to observe its performance or to assist in training. Although Telefunken was the manufacturer of the Würzburg kind of radar, Urtel was uh, one of the few engineers who ever succeeded in seeing it under operational conditions, and this only during the last year. Dr. Engel stated that after Lee Dubridge, who is uh, the head of the MIT Rad Lab, and I had left on the previous night, this was the second day that they were talking to them, uh, the three of them had discussed the surprising closeness of American scientific and military effort as evidenced by our appearance in U.S. Army uniform. To me, this interview proved to be quite thrilling because we had long been deeply interested in the organization and thinking of the German radar people. It seemed clear, however, that the information which we are likely to get in the field will be primarily of historical importance and can be expected to contribute only an occasional technical detail to our own development effort. So you can see this is just very reflective. I mean, he's actually calling the interview thrilling because uh, they're figuring out that the Germans didn't quite have this edge that the American and the British had developed of uh, having this close coordination between the scientists and the field. But the interesting piece of trivia that I mentioned earlier is that the name of the uh, second director of the British branch of the um, radiation laboratory was um, an MIT physicist and electrical engineer by the name of John George Trump who is the uncle of the current president of the United States. Uh, so that's just kind of a, a curious bit of uh, historical trivia. I don't think it has too much to do with uh, you know, our current politics, except for the fact that uh, President Trump has mentioned his uncle from time to time uh, as somebody who he inherited good genes from and his smarts from. Uh, but actually, as you can probably tell from uh, the way that John Trump describes things, they're not terribly similar people. Yeah, so I remember I heard during World War II that the German technologists actually had a better relationship earlier on, and they had more freedom to kind of go out and do what they wanted. And over time, that kind of eroded, at least in the Air Force. I forget um, who was saying this, but I saw Admiral Rickover had been quoting him and pointing this out. Was that true? Did, did you have it? Do you have any? Um information on that? I don't know if I can speak authoritatively to that. I mean, one of the interesting things is that uh, in both Germany and uh, in the UK and the US, uh, you had a lot of uh, very novel projects that got started during the war. So, you know, the German rocketry, jet engines, and that sort of thing is well known in the US. Of course, the atomic bomb project. Um, in Britain, they had things like the bouncing bomb. Uh, and these were sort of technological novelties. And people who were really concerned about coordinating uh, the efforts of the research laboratories with the military needs tended to look askance at those sorts of projects because they regarded them as not being, you know, in some cases realistic, in some cases as responsive to the actual needs of the war. Uh, so one of the, in Britain, one of the principal uh, players is um, 
a man named Henry Tizard, who is known for the Tizard mission, which brought uh, centimeter radar to the United States. Uh, but he's also known for having extremely bad relationship with an Oxford physicist named Frederick Lindemann, uh, who was a very close friend of Winston Churchill. And before the war, uh, Lindemann had pressed all kinds of projects like uh, bombs on parachutes that they might drop in front of invading airplanes and other sorts of things that people like Tizard saw as potentially distracting from the, the radar effort. And so what people like Tizard were arguing for was actually a little bit more control over what scientists were doing and not you know, letting them run off and explore all of their uh, wildest ideas. Yeah, I have kind of like a working theory on this, and I'd like to get your reaction to it. So, for example, especially when you're in wartime, if you're thinking about some of these um, advances that are kind of other outsiders might not believe in them, right? There's, there might be speculative. They might only give you returns over five to ten years or even more than that in many cases. So, like, you really heard right after World War II there was, like, this emphasis on basic science as, like, giving us that, that generational leap. But it seems to me that from a military funding standpoint, that these technologies that are so far out are often, you can't really say exactly what military requirements they're going to fulfill or exactly how they're going to integrate into operations. So if they were interesting technologies from their own point, shouldn't funding from the government or from academia be kind of letting scientists kind of do what they wanted in that basic research and then have military funding really kind of apply that science rather than trying to steer something that at that case might be very far out. Yeah, I think that uh, particularly after World War II when the emergency was over, you know, they started having a lot broader conversations about how you can expand the scope of your horizons. You know, during World War II, like one, I talked about bombs attached to parachutes. Another project that the British pursued was called Project Habakkuk. Have you ever heard of this one? No, I haven't. Oh, it was uh, to be an aircraft carrier made out of ice or a specific kind of ice called pikecrete, named after its uh, inventor, uh, Dr. Pike. I think it was Jeffrey Pike. Uh, and they actually did a lot of our and d on this up at a lake in Canada before deciding that it wouldn't work out. So they were really exploring these very, you know, uh, horizon-type ideas in an environment where things were supposed to be directed more towards the more immediate needs of the war. Yeah, I always have this belief that, like, once you get into the experimentalism and the applications, you really are finding some of the sub-problems to the overall problem that really makes you kind of go back and iterate. Whereas if you're kind of like playing in this sandbox, you know, decades out, well, first you might feel comfortable. You might not really be like applying it so much. Um, but second, you might not be getting that interaction back, back and forth between putting something out there, getting feedback and finding out where you need to go next. Yeah. I mean, there's always this question of how do you, decide how much to fund a particular thing, how far do you go with it, when do you decide to cut it off. So, I mean, you know, there are a host of examples, you know, the, the nuclear-powered airplane, for example, you know, which was finally killed uh, under Kennedy, I believe. And you mentioned uh, a paper uh, that is actually not out yet, uh, probably be out next year in the history of political economy, uh, the R&D testing and economics of information uh, paper. And that's one of the key uh, questions that was explored in the 1950s uh, through people who were working part-time at RAND, uh, econom UCLA economist Armin Alchian, uh, Stanford University economist Kenneth Arrow. They had a series of memoranda in which they said, well, you know, 
We need to support development projects. So this is somewhere between basic research and an actual acquisition program. And we need to support uh, a wide variety of different projects. And as we gather information over the course of um, uh, these different projects, only then can we decide which ones we're, we're going to kill. And they didn't come up with any formula or anything for deciding, you know, when you kill a project or anything like that. But what they were really making the case for was that, you know, the government has a huge role to play in supporting uh, very speculative R&D projects that you didn't think were going to work out. And that was really kind of uh, something, you know, a lot of that was going on in the 1950s. But, you know, there were also worries that, as we have today with, uh, you know, cost plus contracts and that sort of thing, that they'd be in the sandbox forever taking government money and you'd never get anything out of it. So that was a real uh, question that they were grappling with at that time once they started to think more about, you know, what you should be doing in this more uh, long-range blue sky sort of thinking. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the difference between Arrow and Alchin and kind of like their beliefs. So for Arrow, for example, he did a lot of work on the on the sequential decision making in R&D, but it seemed like the way that he was kind of putting it out there was you define an end objective or some kind of requirement. You start with a bunch of competitors, and then as you said over time, um, you get more information about each of those projects and the uncertainty distribution kind of narrows and narrows over time. And so you want to pick the ones with the smaller uncertainty distributions and the ones that are gaining more information and you shed the, the other ones and you kind of progress in this linear type of fashion. Um, and eventually you end up with something that works or the, the best thing that, that was kind of going along at the time. Whereas for Alchin, for me, it seemed more like you want to imitate on existing technologies and then kind of innovate a little bit around the margins and then filter out the ones. And it's kind of like this continuous process from a more ecosystem point of view. So some people are dismissing them as uh, natural selection, but it seems a little bit different from Arrow's perception of just like these uncertainty distributions that are getting whittled down linearly over time, whereas Alchin seems to kind of have a more dynamic viewpoint do you do you see that difference or how would you characterize it uh you know i think that they were trying to make maybe slightly different points i mean if you look at some of um kenneth arrow's rand memoranda you know he'll talk about one of the things that he was really concerned about is that uh development contracts were also only going to companies that could also uh manufacture uh, the ultimate product. And he thought that that wasn't necessarily such a great thing, that you should also be able to support development companies that might not necessarily have that capacity. And one of the points that he made was that, um, you know, it, there, there's probably a case to be made for uh, having a, a production company also do the R&D in cases where you're doing more incremental kinds of R&D. Uh, and so that was you know, one concern that he didn't pay a lot of attention to, but he knew that that's certainly one model of doing things. But, you know, this is a time when, you know, jet engines are just starting to come in, when they have all kinds of different uh, missiles were very much in development in, in this period. And so uh, when you were looking at novelties of that kind, much as you had during World War II, uh, you know, you had to think of maybe a little bit further out ahead. Yeah, I think Algen referred to it as, like, there was hypo-competition mm -hmm. in production because there's a hyper competition 
on the development side. Once you win development, mm-hmm. you get into production, and that's where you make your profits. So, like, industry's profits were on the production sustainment side rather than R&D. So it was just like a ticket into the production game. When you won R&D, you take losses there potentially, win them back later. Yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, I think what, you know, what both of them were really – you know, their prime target, the, the thing that they were arguing against, if there was anything, was premature commitment to a particular technology. And so, uh, you know as well as I that Elgin uh, in particular was concerned that RAND systems and analysts um, were uh, doing, you know, kind of mathematical design exercises that would narrow in on, if not an optimal, then certainly a preferred configuration for a particular weapon system. Uh, and he was worried that, you know, that military contractors were starting to use these uh, systems analyses to try and lock the uh, military into an acquisition program before it was really wise to do so. This, of course, is something that you know we're seeing a lot of today. Is that no, 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 no? We need to do a lot more prototyping. Uh, we need to put more a lot in those uh, six, a lot more funding in those you know six, seven, uh, six, five accounts to. Uh, avoid getting locked into a particular kind of technology right or not have procurement funds lined up at a specific time such that you're kind of incentivized to well the, the funds are there i'm ready for them i just need to get through testing right to kind of get over that hump and and get the procurement funds which are ready for me because they were programmed in from kind of like the start of development yeah i mean the th- when in the 1950s you know the concern was that the only way to make a contract to build a prototype pay was to get the production contract as well. Uh, Arrow referred to it as a kind of loss leader, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so it was really just trying to get past, you know, contractors who were, you know, quite reasonably trying to make prototype development uh, guaranteed payoff. So they were contemplating all of these different contracting structures, uh, setting up uh, independently funded research institutes uh, in order to break that connection between development and production. With Arrow's work on sequentialism, it seemed a little surprising to me just because, at least as an economist and his work in economics, he's so um, driven towards and known for optimizations and social welfare functions, whereas Alchin was really kind of looking towards um, problems of exchange, such as in property rights and theories of the firm and, and markets. So whereas I see Arrow as kind of like an allocation paradigm where you're kind of like looking from the top down, Alchin I think of as someone that's bottom-up, evolutionary, um, very different kind of models. Uh, do you think one holds more value than the other, or do you think there's some important interaction between the two? Uh, you know, I don't even know if I'd frame the issue that way necessarily. I mean, Arrow tends to be defined, you know, in a way by his uh, greatest hits, uh, you know, the general equilibrium and whatnot, which is where he gets the reputation that you spoke of. Uh, but one of the things that I try and explore in this paper, uh, you know, that, I, that I'm talking about is that his deep cuts are very interesting as well. So, you know, some of the things that he was interested uh, in immediately after the war was the statistical theory of sequential analysis. And this actually brings us back to uh, the wartime context again, in this case, uh, quality control inspection, wherein the idea was that you didn't necessarily have to set aside uh, an exact sample size for testing to know if uh, a lot was going to pass muster. Instead, what you could do is you could start testing and gather information during the course of a test 
sequence to determine when it was you should actually stop testing. And he very explicitly applies that idea, which he had explored formalistically, mathematically, in the context of statistical theory to R&D. Uh, so all these RAND memoranda, they're, they're not very typical arrow papers. There's hardly any equations in them whatsoever, but he's still applying those same ideas that he developed uh, in a, a more formalistic context to to these issues. And so I think, you know, you just have to look at the arguments that they're making. I don't think that they're advocating for, you know, a top-down or a bottom-up approach necessarily, just so just one really that's more flexible than the one that they saw in place uh, at that time in the 1950s. Right. And so I, I think that gets to, I guess, where I was kind of coming into Arrow and, and the statistical analysis part that was kind of tripping me up because mm-hmm. um, let me just give you a couple little pushbacks on Arrow and try to convince me why um, his approach really isn't kind of like this top-down, too formalistic model, especially for research and development, where, as Alchin said, you're really just buying information, right? You're not supposed to be producing end items in themselves for the field. Like, that's a production decision. That can be more centralized, sure, because you have more information upon which to do these types of analyses. But so for the statistical analysis part in research and development, let's just say you have one or more different types of projects. Well, wouldn't different groups or people assign different probabilities to each of these alternatives because necessarily you're looking into the future for the most part? Yeah, I'm not totally sure that I, I understand exactly what you mean there. But I think that, you know, the idea that, you know, there would be some kind of subjective probability attached to each of these things is important. But, you know, you're not necessarily trying to narrow things down to one you know, particular system, you're just trying to eliminate systems that are going to be infeasible or, uh, you know, prohibitively expensive. So when we're talking about elimination, we're not necessarily whittling it down to one final choice so much as we are uh, viewing engineering as an information gathering exercise, much in the way that doing a quality control test is in the same way an information gathering exercise. Uh, so that at the end of the day, you can make you know a, a more intelligent decision based on what you know about the perspective technology, what you know about your requirements, what you know about your budgets, uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, and so ultimately, at the end of the day, you're going to have to make a decision at a very certain point in time when you make a, your commitment. You know, uh, and you have to do that on the basis of all the information that you have. But that's not necessarily what you're driving towards uh, at the beginning of this process. You're just you know, gaining engineering knowledge. That makes sense, but when I think of it in terms of certain technology developments, the uncertainty might not be reduced in a linear progressive type of fashion. It might be false starts, false hopes, pivots, and, and different things that might spill over or outcomes you didn't expect. So just a simple example is, for example, Thomas Edison, when he was inventing the light bulb, his trial and error experimentalism Basically, when he tried one thing for the light bulb and it didn't work, his uncertainty distribution was still uniform. It was just uniform over time, right? You're not learn. You're just learning that something didn't work, mm-hmm. but there's still this huge space of things that might possibly work. You don't really know. So it wasn't really until that three thousandth attempt where he got it right um, that the uncertainty just collapsed to zero. But then. Um, the uncertainty wasn't going anywhere. It was just flat over time. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, probably, you know, as I say, Arrow is writing, 
in this context in a very qualitative way. And if you were trying to make a more formalistic sort of model about it, there would be a multitude of models that you could uh, imagine. So in one case, you know, of like a kind of simple Papirian falsification in the case of, you know, Edison and the light bulb, it's like, well, uh, I have a thousand possibilities. One doesn't work. Now I'm left with 999 possibilities. But, you know, if you're dealing with something like uh, the airframe industry in the 1950s, you know, presumably it's uh, a, a little bit more of an intelligent process than that. So you're trying out certain kinds of uh, experimental technologies, but it's not you know, exactly trial and error. There's a kind of, um, what would you say, a wisdom to the uh, the design approach, uh, an engineer's intuition for what sorts of things might kind of work and what classes of technologies you're eliminating once you've done a certain amount of experimentation. So that also makes sense to me. But let me push back a little bit in the terms that for us to kind of make sense of these statistics, if we want to put numbers on them, you basically, at the start of the research and development effort, you basically have to fix an outcome or else what are you measuring against, Mm -hmm. right? And then as things occur, you might learn things, you might pivot things. Um, There might be new attributes or attributes taken off, and that might present us some incommensurables between different attributes to kind of say, you know, is this design better than that design or is it more likely to succeed because well, on this margin, it might be better. On that margin, it might not. But I can't really put that into a single equation or for analysis. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that's 100% true. You know, I mean, my background is a historian of science and technology. And so the the nonlinearity of the process is something that, you know, of either science or engineering is something that, you know, I'm intimately familiar with. And I, I think that that's absolutely true. Yeah, I think you're over-interpreting Arrow a little bit here. I mean, he's making a very general point about the need to independently support development, and that, that that's about it. I mean, that's really all there is in, in these 1950s papers, is kind of a, a rationalization for the need to uh, independently fund development and uh, recommendations for various incentive structures that you might use to do so. To what end do you think that kind of succeeded so, for example, I think the Department of Defense does fairly well in some exploration, particularly on the early side, the S&T side, the mm-hmm. 6.1, maybe 3. Um, but as we get into the 6.4, 6.7, once we get into real full-scale development and then tests, it seems like we've, we've really kind of locked that down. And I think my interpretation of Alchin and potentially Arrow is that you should keep those options open basically all the way through the RDT&E process. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's kind of fair or do you think there needs to be chunked down the way I kind of view Charles Hitch and some of the other guys, the systems analysis guys and Rand on the other Mm -hmm. side of that debate was, yeah, we need that kind of exploration. But, you know, really, once you get to the engineering design phase after preliminary design, you should have a good idea. We should start implementing controls and seeing what the performance will be by locking down kind of requirements and technologies at that stage. Yeah, I mean, if we go back to those, like, 1953-era debates, you know, when it was really, you know, the economists versus the systems and analysts, you know, I think they kind of came to an accord within a few years uh, through the mediation of people like Charles Hitch uh, at Rand. But, you know, specifically at that time, you know, as I was saying earlier, 
you know, they were worried that they were going to use a system analysis to uh, commit prematurely to a particular design. And what the systems analysts, uh, people like Ed Quaid were saying at that time, was that, look, I mean, you're going to need to make decisions. You, you don't necessarily need to make one decision about one technology, but amid all the infinite possible technologies you can develop, there's going to be some set that is going to be preferred. And the question is, you know, how do you decide what that set looks like? Well, that's, in essence, the definition of systems analysis, is that you've weighed all of the uh, factors that might bear upon your decision, uh, and then you've, in a sense, narrowed down the sense of, you know, what you're going to support for further development as it moves along, you know, what we would now refer to as a, like a technology readiness level. Right. And I think that the way that you and I might put it is that you need some kind of interaction there because your models will update based on experimental information. And then once you get a new model, that might open you up for new types of experiments and you're learning and you're progressing over time. But it seemed like there was this kind of view at the time, I might call it a Newtonian type of view, that you could just kind of create a complete and accurate model that's computable of the real world and narrow uncertainty down through these models um, very quickly so that you, you're not wasting effort in development doing different things or iterating because mm -hmm. that seems like a very wasteful way to progress yourself. So you were talking about, and I didn't know this, but it was very interesting, that Warren Weaver from the uh, Applied Mathematical Panel during World War II, he kind of imagined that there would be this computer that could basically evaluate the trade-offs in all engineering designs for military systems. And to me, this, again, goes back to that determinist view of nature. And a lot of times you see this repeated over time, like in the 70s, they were talking about, oh, well, David Packard's prototyping program isn't as important now that we have AutoCAD, right? And then even today, you have what's called like the High Performance Computing Modernization Program in the Department of Defense. And they're also talking about making these very um, model-based decisions ahead of time. Mm -hmm. uh, so what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that uh, a lot of the early RAND people tend to get pegged as kind of uh, rational idealists, maybe. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I do in my book is I push back against that a little. Just as, you know, as I say with Arrow, you have to understand, you know, what problem he was addressing, which was, you know, the idea that uh, you didn't have to pay too much for development because, you know, people wanted to gain follow-on contracts. Similarly, with uh, the people who were doing systems analysis, uh, they were also pushing against the problem, which was basically making decisions about design arbitrarily without having thought it through. One of the interesting things that I did in my book is I traced this, you know, this is a, an idea that tends to get pegged, like, right to 1947 when the RAND Corporation is established. And it, you can actually push it back a, a full decade earlier into the UK, uh, where there was um, a statistician named LBC Cunningham who worked for the British Air Ministry. And the problem that he was uh, facing was that decisions about, you know, the armament that you were going to put on an airplane were essentially being made on the basis of, well, we want the armaments to be, you know, we want rapid fire, we want accuracy, we want precision, we want the uh, the bullets to, you know, have a, a large effect on the, the airplane. You know, you might use explosive bullets versus non-explosive bullets, for example. Uh, and 
you know, all of those things are great, but at the end of the day, you sometimes have to make trade-offs between these different qualities in the configuration of your equipment. And the only way to make those trade-offs is on the basis of how you think it's going to bear on the outcome of uh, a typical instance of combat. And so he developed what was called, this is in 1937, 1938, what was called the mathematical theory of combat, wherein he combined these uh, attributes of weapon systems with a uh, mathematical representation of, say, uh, a pursuit curve of one airplane firing on another, as well as the vulnerabilities of the uh, airplane that was being shot at in order to determine which configuration was better than another. Now, it wasn't because this model was perfect, but it was because it could root out certain fallacies in your thinking. And better than that, what it could do is actually narrow down the kinds of tests that you would have to perform in a laboratory setting in order to reduce a particular uncertainty enough that you could finally make a, uh, a decision between those two armament configurations. And so these papers from Cunningham, uh, he, he ultimately died in 1945 prematurely, but his papers came to Warren Weaver, who was an American mathematician and uh, the director of the natural sciences program at the Rockefeller Foundation during the war. Uh, in the early years of the war, he was put in charge of uh, the civilian effort in uh, working on fire control devices, where, of course, this is a very uh, uh, a live problem, you know, trying to decide, you know, what attributes your fire control device should have for tracking a, a target successfully, since any particular uh, piece of equipment wasn't going to be perfect. You had to decide which ones were preferable to others. And so he got these papers and he said, these, this is the greatest thing. And so he gathered together uh, a group of economists in, at uh, Columbia University, uh, and they started developing these ideas, but he never got the chance to um, really go to town with this idea to the extent that he wanted to until 1944 when the B-29 bombers started being used. Now, the B-29 bomber had been rushed uh, really through production into combat uh, in the Pacific Theater, and uh, it had all of these novel gadgets like remotely controlled uh, turrets and that sort of thing that they didn't really know how to use. They didn't know whether you should bomb from a very high altitude or, as they ultimately did, from a, a lower altitude going very quickly. Uh, that was that was LeMay's doctrine for uh, using incendiary bombing against Japan. And what they did is they put together a very huge proposal for a testing and analysis program for how to use the B-29 bomber. It was called uh, Contract AC-92 with the Applied Mathematics Panel. Uh, and the military didn't really like it that much. They did a lot of uh, field tests at the, uh, the airfield at Alamogordo, New Mexico, where they were soon to uh, test the atomic bomb. But, and they did uh, some interesting uh, tests with models, like little model B-29s. Uh, this was at the Mount Wilson Observatory in Pasadena, California, and they attached little light bulbs to the models to simulate the spread of gunfire, and then they put sensors up to see, you know, exactly how the, the gunfire would uh, be distributed in space for different kinds of B-29 bomber formations. So they did that, but they wanted to integrate all of these mathematically uh, uh, at Princeton University. Military would not have it. They said, you know, to the extent that we're going to do this kind of thing at all, we want our own operations uh, researchers in the field to be working on it, not you guys back here in the United States. Weaver was very disappointed in this because he saw a lot of uh, 
significance in you know trying to root out different fallacies, trying to root out a preferred bomber formation or a preferred you know armament configuration or that sort of thing as only analysis could reveal. Uh, and this was the basis of this kind of fever dream for a tactical strategic computer that he had. And he, he knew it was kind of a wacky idea. He called it like a Rube Goldberg type thing. But in his early uh, drafts of it, he called it raisins in the oatmeal. It was meant to take what would otherwise have been a very dry mathematical report and get it read by people who he wanted to invest in this sort of thing. And actually, uh, the, the opportunity to implement this vision came along uh, sooner than you know he might have thought, because in 1946, they did set up uh, Air Force Project RAND uh, out in Santa Monica, originally with the Douglas Aircraft Company. And they very specifically wanted this kind of analysis done, this mathematical kind of analysis. And so that's what they did. And uh, their first project was for a preferred configuration for the B-52 bomber. Now, if you look at the uh, history of the B-52 bomber, uh, the contract had already been given to Boeing for it. And they were actually having a pretty bad time in the early days of working on that project because they would come up, uh, Boeing would come up with a design, and then the what was soon the Independent Air Force, you know, would change the requirements, and they would say, "Nope, sorry, we got to have something else." And they would have this going back and forth about the requirements and the design, and it was wasting everybody's time. And so, what they tried to do with the strategic bombing systems analysis was to say, "All right, let's try and harmonize the requirements for the bomber." Uh, in terms of its uh, intended mission, which was the strategic bombing of the Soviet Union with nuclear weapons, uh, and the preferred configuration for the bomber. And they spent three years and an enormous amount of effort doing this. And what they ultimately came up with was they came up with fairly intricate designs, but probably the key thing uh, aspect of it was that they said you should make the B-52 into a turboprop bomber because it's relatively cheap compared to this newfangled jet engine technology. Uh, it's not as good, more of them will be shot down, but you can build a lot of them, and that will allow you to accomplish your mission uh, a lot better uh, than if you had uh, a turbojet B-52. Air Force hated it. And in fact, there's a little bit of chicanery wherein they started toying around with the cost estimates for uh, turboprops and jet engines to try and get it get the preferred result, and this did not please Rand at all, but ultimately the Air Force got its way, and the B-52, as we still know it today, you know, is, uh, is a jet engine bomber. And so this kind of sent Rand into thinking, like, you know, how do we take into account, you know, Whatever it was the Air Force decided that made a jet engine B-52 into uh, a preferred solution, you know, could they have actually been the rational ones and we were being the irrational ones? Were they looking further into the future than we wanted to look? Were there hidden uh, things that they, you know, that they didn't necessarily express when they put out the requirements for this study, but that nonetheless were causing them to make this decision. And this actually leads directly into the Alchian and Arrow things, uh, arguments that we were talking about earlier, wherein they were saying, well, actually, you know, we have to take into account the fact that engineering is a learning process. And ultimately, the things that are very prohibitively expensive today are not 
you know, four, five, six, ten years down the road going to be prohibitively expensive in the future. Uh, and so that was kind of how they first started thinking about this idea as engineering is this iterative learning process. Uh, and you can actually go and see, you know, their early papers, uh, which were on uh, these learning curves. And this ultimately ended up feeding into Arrow's foundational economic work on what is called learning by doing. Uh, and so it's just interesting to see all these interstices between these different strands of thought. But the, the, the point that I want to make is that you always have to take into account the problem that they were worried about addressing rather than some idealized solution uh, that they were trying to come up with. But it seems to me when you do a systems analysis and you're choosing the one best model rather than having several competing models, which all might be valid in their own way, you are kind of driving towards that kind of idealistic solution. So, for example, I believe this was in Mark Mandelez's excellent book on the B-52, where George Scherer, who was the VP at Boeing, basically said, look, we went for the turbojet because it just became obvious after the B-47 prototype that the drag was much, much lower than we ever imagined, and it just made a lot more sense to go there, and um, the, the engine technology was kind of coming about faster than they expected. So it seemed like, again, mm -hmm. that if you went the, the RAND kind of systems analysis way, you kind of have to lock down based on what is knowable today, what can I articulate today, mm -hmm. as opposed to what kind of hunches do I have in the future? And then like there's these competing models that some may work, some may not work. But then when you refer back to a systems analysis, everything has to be objective. And usually there's one optimized kind of answer. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of an interesting, you know, and again, you kind of have to look at, go back to all the original RAND documents, like their internal memoranda, a lot of which the RAND Corporation has now put online, but as well as like a, a lot of their published books from uh, a little bit later on, you know, I mean, Economics of Defense in the Nuclear Age, uh, the, the Handbook of Systems Analysis, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and what you find is that, you know, I mean, nobody thought that the strategic bombing systems analysis was a successful study. I mean, they'd spent three years, three years working on this thing, and it was just ignored. But it was picked apart, and it was uh, little bits and pieces of it were readapted by, you know, the airframe companies uh, as they were developing, you know, their own designs for prospective bombers and fighters and whatnot. And you know, what they started to think about a little bit more carefully after 1950 and the publication of, not publication, but the release of the uh, strategic bombing systems analysis is how do you use a systems analysis? What constitutes a responsible use of a systems analysis? So when we talk about this, um, this uh, conflict between the economists and the systems analysts, what this was spurred by, when it reached its peak anyway, it was spurred by the fact that Rand wanted to put together a course on systems analysis. How do you appreciate a systems analysis? It, was, it wasn't a course on how to do systems analysis. It was a course on how to, to appreciate how to consume a systems analysis. And, you know, they... And these were exactly the kinds of things that, you know, they would bring up as, you know, what are these things good for? What are they not good for? What constitutes an irresponsible use of a systems analysis? And Alcian's critique was that he just didn't think that that sort of thing was going to be good enough, that the incentives were such that the very existence of systems analysis was going to lead 
the Air Force and its contractors into settling on a preferred design, even though that wasn't the wisest, most responsible way of, of doing things. He thought it was that whatever good systems analysis might do is outweighed by this this danger. And he had a line, I, I can't quote it to you verbatim, but it was something like, uh, little boys in matches don't necessarily lead to fires, but if it's your boy and your house, you can't ignore that fact. And that was what he was referring to, was the danger that people were going to be using systems analysis wrong. So ultimately, Rand does put together this course. We don't know exactly how effective it was, how well-received it was, but this constant just self-rumination on how to do this sort of thing responsibly, I mean, it's there continually. Uh, Herman Kahn, uh, who we all know from his, uh, you know, perhaps irresponsible ruminations on thermonuclear war, uh, actually wrote uh, uh, a, a Rand memorandum called Ten Common Pitfalls. And it was the way, it, it was just uh, the various ways that an analyst can go wrong in their craft. And he explicitly says, you know, like in fields as new as systems analysis and operations research, there's going to be a lot of self-examination, a lot of self-doubt, just because we don't know the, the power of our methods. And so what he was trying to do is come up with almost a therapeutic approach, a certain amount of uh, catechism of problems that you can ruminate on to try and do this sort of thing more responsibly. For me, it seems like a systems analysis is very beneficial to an individual or an individual group deciding upon a design and how they're going to go about it because someone has to plan. But the idea that there should be this centralized RAND office or office in um, either NAV Air or in the, or in the Air Command mm -hmm. that's using a systems analysis to decide upon competing designs mm -hmm. is potentially harmful to the process because it might lead to that that problem of over optimization and selecting too early what do mm -hmm. you think about that you know i mean i think for an engineer the kinds of problems that systems analysis was designed to address i mean they're basically inevitable problems of choice that engineers face and so you know it does give you a set of tools as an engineer that you can use to make decisions about an armament configuration or defense configuration or if you're uh, deploying you know these aircraft you know what formation you should fly them in and that sort of thing so I mean there might necessarily be you know multiple centers where people are doing these kinds of things if you're uh, in the Air Force or if you're in the Pentagon uh, DOD level you know, and you're consuming these sorts of analyses, you might, you know, want to do analyses of your own or at least be able to pick them apart to, you know, see if you agree with their assumptions. Uh, and, you know, it's always when these things get let out without, into the wild without, you know, being sufficiently critiqued or picked, or picked apart that they lose their virtue and the vices associated with them, you know, kind of come into play. But, you know, I mean, it's not just the tools that are available. I mean, there's always, you know, politics and blunt politics associated with contracting for a certain weapon system, lobbyists, Congress, you know, that sort of thing that probably has at least as much of an effect on these sorts of decisions as uh, having a, a tool that you don't know how to use responsibly. So you have to consider that as well. I think the politics point is, is a good one to bring up. I think it was uh, James Schlesinger who was saying, like, hey, look, um, 
you think that the systems analysis and like a nice rational method is leading to these designs, but in reality, a lot of times it's technology being pushed by the contractor, which ends up as the requirements being put into kind of a systems analysis because the systems analysis isn't just an optimization exercise. It's also a selection and a criteria selection mm -hmm. exercise, which comes from somewhere. I think John Boyd also found this when he was working on the FX, which became the F15. Like some of the companies, they had the variable inlet uh, geometry and allowed them to go at a much higher speed. But there's all these um, trade-offs in terms of, you know, fuel consumption and maintenance procedures. And then he and he found, well, really, it was the the contractor who had this new technology. They kind of pushed it in, and then it kind of became an assumption in the uh, the systems analysis that was done later. So it was kind of like the politics, but also the pre-contract process and the marketing process through which the contractors they have something and they're trying to and they're trying to get that wrapped into whatever the government's going to be doing in their systems analysis yeah i mean I, I think that's right i mean again you know having a background in history of science and technology i mean you just run into these stories like constantly i mean you know there's always going to be some mix of you know people who are trying to make a good decision and people who are doing so for petty reasons and sometimes you make a good decision for petty reasons uh, that you can only rationalize and understand the rationale behind it at a later date and it you know i mean it's a mistake to call the the process completely chaotic but it, you know to call it rational or linear or whatnot is obviously a mistake as well so you know i mean that's just the reality of it isn't it i mean yeah, certainly. But, you know, you said earlier that Charles Hitch and some of those guys that ran were kind of like bridging the divide between the Alchin and Aero sequentialists and then the, the kind of hardcore uh, systems analysts like Quaid. But what they seemed to eventually land on was that, you know, break up the R&D process into 6.1, 2, 3. You go from basic research to applied and then you go into development at higher stages and then test and eval and it's kind of like there is a linear progression through there and it doesn't seem like there's any kind of mechanisms built into that budget structure to kind of like, well, we need to iterate, but you've already done this five-year lineup of your funds, usually to completion actually, right? But they only publish the five years. Um, so it seemed like, even though that might not have been the intent, that's kind of where they landed. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that you know, having a, a structure is going to bring you so far. It allows you to talk about issues. And, in, you know, in terms of things like technology readiness level, I mean, in my current role as a science policy analyst, I probably know the NASA case a little bit better than I know the DOD case. And it's something that they've, when they want to put up uh, an extremely expensive, you know, for NASA multi-billion dollar uh, space telescope, for example, the James Webb Space Telescope is notorious for its budget growth. I mean, it went from about $4 billion to now about $10 billion. And there were three separate stages of cost growth. One was when they kept adding uh, different requirements for it in its early design phase. Then the second phase, uh, which is the one that concerns us, I, I think, the most, is that they were add they were committing technologies to it before they were considered to be fully mature. And so now, as they're considering new space telescopes, in particular one called the Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope, they've made a very conscious decision, we're not going to do that again. Only mature technologies uh, at a certain point in the design process. And so, you know, there's not... Uh, 
a mechanism per se for you know guaranteeing that a technology is going to move from one technology readiness level to the other and so on up the ladder uh, but you know it at least gives you a language for deciding on whether or not you're going to you know include a particular technology uh, in your finished system I think this brings up a distinction that I like to make kind of between the weapon systems process and then a systems analysis. So in the systems analysis, you're kind of bringing together quantitative information and help make decisions in the future. But then for the weapon systems process, it seems like the idea that you have to create a platform and all of the components that will integrate into that platform, it all kind of goes together, starts together, finishes together. And so if you kind of have these tightly integrated components that are all in development at the same time, along with the, the platform and the system that they'll be going on, you know, you're just going to have things that are um, progressing faster or slower. The technology readiness levels aren't going to be kind of like creeping up to, to fully ready at the exact same rate for mm -hmm. integration. And then when you kind of have these schedules that are all kind of moving along, when you have some guy that's on a critical path, you have to just put more money and more management pressure into making him work or else in the future, he's not going to be able to integrate with the design that everyone else is moving towards. Mm -hmm. And so if you could create like a more of an ecosystem and an environment of components that are fully tested and then be able to rapidly integrate them, um, it seems like the technology readiness level problem is kind of solving itself rather than, you know, having to predict okay, you're at a technology readiness level four, but I know in this many years you'll be creeping up and you'll be ready by then. Mm -hmm. It seems like we're not oracles in that way. Yeah, I mean, again, I know the NASA case better. And I think that, you know, the way they handle different kinds of missions. So if you're on a relatively cheap mission, you basically have to use technologies, science instruments uh, that are more or less off the shelf if you're designing these relatively cheap missions. They, they farm them out to principal investigators, which are basically university-based or NASA center-based, like at uh, here at Goddard or out at uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. You know, they'll have them develop it, develop it under a cost cap, and you, your technologies have to be, you know, pretty close to being ready to go. Now, for the flagships, uh, which have longer development cycles, these are multi-billion dollar missions, there will be a certain amount of room for technology development. And they've gotten, I would say, better at, you know, making some hard choices. So the one that in science policy has come up quite recently is the Europa Clipper mission. Europa is a moon of Jupiter. It's icy. Uh, they think there's a, a liquid ocean beneath the ice on it. So it's very interesting. It could even harbor life there. Uh, and so they have this mission that's going to go out and make multiple flybys of this moon of Jupiter. And actually, very recently, they canceled one of the instruments on this mission because its cost just kept going up and up and up. And this actually caused quite a bit of consternation in the planetary science community because they weren't even familiar with the, the decision-making mechanism that NASA was using to monitor the cost of this mission and to actually make a decision that we're going to get rid of this magnetometer. We're going to replace it with another simpler magnetometer that's more ready to go. Uh, even though we don't know what that magnetometer is, we know that we don't want to do this one anymore, and we're going to replace it. And this has just recently happened, and it's something that they're trying to do to avoid having another kind of James Webb Space Telescope situation. 
And I don't know to the extent that DOD is doing that or is willing to do that sort of thing or to the effect, to what extent it's even possible to do that with uh, components of a weapon system versus scientific instruments on uh, a spacecraft. But uh, that's, that's the way it's working over at NASA at the moment. I think in the DOD, there's kind of been that, that movement towards you want the high re technological readiness level type things, but you also, you're expecting whatever the new platform is, it has to outdo in every respect the legacy or it's kind of not viable. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of times that kind of puts you towards new new types of components that integrate into the new weapon system. I think Ellen Lord, the undersecretary for acquisition sustainment recently was saying, hey, we have these rapid acquisition authorities. They don't actually just need to be for weapon systems. So I think they're trying to get that message out there. Hey, you can kind of just work on an engine just to work on an engine, and then we'll see where it goes later. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of getting back towards a little bit more of that incremental decision-making as opposed to the weapon systems concept that all starts and goes together. Yeah, I mean, maybe you can educate me a little bit here because uh, – you know, we do follow DOD R&D policy, but not so much the individual weapon systems. But I know that, you know, supposedly with the prototyping, they're supposed to be more willing to kill things at a relatively uh, late time frame. And I think, wasn't, didn't Mike Griffin actually uh, cancel something? Like, was it the redesigned kill vehicle? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, is that an example of this sort of thing, that they're more willing to make decisions? Or is it just, can we not tell? <laughs> well, I... I Again, there's there's lots of good talk out there, and I think it's actually kind of different um, in the last three or four years than it has been in the past. And you do see a lot more willingness to kind of start things with these innovation hubs, mm -hmm. rapid acquisition. But again, there's there's still how how will that pan out? And I don't really see them going specifically for that. Hey, let's have an ecosystem of different components, subsystems, and systems. So like mm -hmm. you're kind of moving. Um, through the ecosystem rather than because usually it's like to, in order to get the budget justified for it it has to be identified with an end system or there's just not money mm -hmm. that's available for these things so you want to say i already have an existing procurement or existing major systems uh, r&d program usually they give them risk of risk adjusted funding so there's that cushion and then you can use that cushion for these kind of prototypes mm -hmm. but then it's already kind of identified with an end system it's not exploratory in the same way that it was yeah yeah i mean i suppose you know things have to be a little bit more uh you know bespoke when you're dealing with uh, things like weapon systems versus scientific instruments on a a spacecraft that's just going to play the host to a series of different scientific instruments but it'd be interesting to to develop the the comparison a little bit further to see if you know there's anything to it yeah definitely um you know one thing that this brings up for me a little is in that sequential decision making we put sequential decision making alongside with the acquisition of information right and mm -hmm. for me this kind of goes back to a little bit like the economics of search yeah definitely but but the way that it seems to be formulated is that, um, at least when you try to do it mathematically, it's that you're searching for something that you know that you're searching for it beforehand. Like you have the information ahead of time. Like I like to use the example of like Spanish. Mm -hmm. I know, I know I don't know Spanish, right? And I know that it might take me six months or a year to acquire the knowledge of Spanish. I have to be immersed. So there's the cost. 
once I learn Spanish, I know what I can do with Spanish. There's the benefit. I can make that kind of cost-benefit trade-off in my head because I already knew what it was that I didn't know mm -hmm. and what kind of value it had. Whereas when we're talking about technology development, usually the problem is of discovery and novelty. So it's like you're trying to acquire information, but you don't know what that information is, what the cost-benefit analysis should be. So you basically just have to go out, <laughs> you know, into, into the unknown and, and, and learn like true learning as opposed to like, you know, learning something that you knew existed mm -hmm. and you knew how to get it. And you just had to pay a cost to go get it. Like it was out on the open market or something like that. Do you mm -hmm. see this kind of distinction? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's, you know, when we talk about discovery, I mean, it's, uh, a multifaceted concept, right? So the, you know, I mean, what you're referring to is kind of a serendipitous discovery that, you know, I've been working on a particular project. It might be more applied. It might be some laboratory type, you know, fundamental science type of project. And it spits out something that I, I, I wasn't even looking for, but, you know, that turns out to be extremely valuable. And that's kind of the rationale that you have for, you know, funding basic research at the National Science Foundation, but not stipulating through budget line items how they're going to organize, you know, their their programs or giving 6-1 funds to the Air Force Research Lab and just letting them do with it what they want, you know, just having basically being, uh, you know, independent program officers like you would have at DARPA or uh, ARPA-E uh, in the Department of Energy uh, and just being very independent about that sort of thing. But then you have uh, another situation wherein, you know, you know that you're going to learn something. Uh, you know, you don't know what it is you're going to learn, but you know roughly what form it's going to take and what decision it's going to inform. And, you know, that's certainly the case in engineering a system, but I'm thinking of a, a bulletin that I've just written on the application of artificial intelligence to uh, scientific experimental workflows. So there's this uh, group at Princeton University and Johns Hopkins University that are developing mechanisms for using a spectrograph uh, at a, uh, that's under development for use at the Subaru telescope uh, in Hawaii. And the thing with the spectrograph is that it has 2,400 different fibers that can each individually gather photons from target stars. And they're individually steerable so that you can steer them to different, um, basically different stars or different galaxies or, or whatever. And you can gather photons for independently variable lengths of time. So, you know, fiber number one might be on star A for you know, one hour fiber number two might be on star B for two hours, you know, and then at a certain point you have to decide when you've gathered enough photons that you can have one individual fiber move on and you have to make that decision for 2,400 different fibers. So what they're doing is they're applying uh, artificial intelligence to have a computer decide when it is that they think that they've learned enough based on the number based on the information that they've gathered from a certain target astronomical object to that point that they can then retarget that fiber to another star and start over. And those decisions have to be made in terms of some, you know, knowledge goal uh, about astronomy that you want to solve. And so you don't know, the person who's 
you know, running the experiment doesn't know what each individual fiber has learned. It's the computer that knows that. The computer knows roughly what kind of knowledge it's supposed to augment, but it's the one that has to make the decision about when you've learned enough from a particular target star. So that's another kind of disguise. It's a very long-winded way of, you know, saying that, you know, some of these things, even though you don't know what you're going to be learning, you know enough about what you're going to be learning looks like that you can automate or rationalize that process in some way versus you know the pure you know serendipitous apple falling from the tree to use a hoary old myth you know kind of uh, process of discovery yeah I think that's a good point when I think of artificial intelligence I'm really thinking of like a very empirical method where you couldn't really say ahead of time how much data and how much training it needed to come to the answer that you were looking for but like, you know, that, that happens over time. So you couldn't necessarily put a plan to it exactly like, okay, Congress, you know, these photons need, you know, this much, um, and I'll get there. And then this is the budget plan because like, well, I might have to run it much longer than I expected, or it might be much shorter and that might have implications throughout whatever the schedule and the cost will be. So it's like to prematurely say that you need this much computing, or that much funding before you kind of get into that empirical feedback loop, I think is um, potentially destructive. Because if you lock if you lock it in, maybe you're overfunding them, and they're mm -hmm. just looking for low marginal uh, benefit places to put that funding in case that they need it later, and they don't want to, you know, give it back or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's remarkable. I mean, when you you know, are trained to think like, you know, a modern day, not a World War II operations researcher, but, you know, somebody who's familiar with linear programming and all these sorts of things. You can see, you know, the analogies be between a spectrograph that aims 2,400 fibers at different stars and uh, an R&D director who's funding, you know, 200 different projects and has to make decisions about when to cu cut off a particular one. And except for the fact that when stars don't talk back, stars don't, you know, make it look like they're, you know, right around the corner from having uh, a workable prototype or something like that. So that, that does introduce additional complications. But uh, at some level, there, there's interesting analogies to be made about those sorts of decisions. So I wanted to go back to Arrow, and he argued that if decisions were supposed to take the most information possible in order to make the best decision, it by definition would have to be a centralized decision. Yeah. Me uh, kind of push back a little bit, and I want to get your opinion on this. So Michael Poliani would say something like, well, most of the important information is actually cannot be articulated in a specific way to the central authority. A lot of it is tacitly held or dispersed across individuals as to what may or may not work, and they all have overlapping knowledge with one another while still trying to contribute something new mm -hmm. and further the reputation. So they're making good guesses, the best guesses that they can as mm -hmm. to what will be fruitful or not fruitful. And at least when um, you centralize a lot of the decisions, Arrow was saying, okay, the government has monopsony power. That mm -hmm. means it can structure the defense industry how it wants, and it can take advantage of that and be able to lower prices. But the monopsony problem to me it seems like it's the opposite because you lose signals as to product values and choices that are actually occurring across the responsible scientists and engineers in the system. Mm -hmm. And when you lose those signals, you kind of get into the self-referential feedback loop and the government then kind of becomes 
beholden to the contractors for information and the like. So what do you think about these um, two kind of propositions that I put up there for you, the centralization and then its effect on monopsony? Yeah, I think, I mean, you've really hit upon one of the central themes in the history of economic thought. I mean, you know, there's no coincidence that it reminds me of the socialist calculation controversy of the 1930s, you know, and the idea that, you know, if you're going to have a centralized economy, then you have to basically know everything there is to know about that economy in order to distribute resources and within it in anything like an efficient way. And then you have the people, you know, most famously uh, Hayek, you know, who will say like, well, it's simply impossible. And so you actually have to have everything be decentralized in order for efficiency to be possible at all. And again, going back to Arrow's greatest hits, this is very much the model of the uh, general equilibrium proof, which is that, you know, you can have this kind of uh, decentralized representation of an economy that can nevertheless, you know, work its way towards uh, some kind of optimized equilibrium. But then all of a sudden we get the arrow who's not quite so enamored with markets when it comes to military R&D. And what he's saying in this case is that, you know, look, we have a lot of different lines of development uh, that are going on. And, but they're going on in different companies. And so if we're going to make a decision that takes advantage of the uh, development that's taken place in all these different companies, we have to have somebody who's privy to the information of all of those different places. And that can only be the government. Uh, because, you know, not surprisingly, these companies are not going to want to share the information that they've gained from development with each other, because it's going to disappear on them and all of a sudden everyone will have that information uh, and so they'll either not engage in development to begin with or they'll try their best to sequester the information within the the four walls of their company and so it's only by having a contractor who's putting out all these different development contracts that have to report back that you can possibly make a decision based upon the information that all of these different companies are doing are, are producing yeah that's a i think that's a good response there but let me just kind of push that a little bit further so you mentioned Arrow was kind of influenced by the learning by doing, which is supposed to be like, okay, for every doubling of production quantities, the amount of touch labor or routine things, you know, decreases by a certain percentage. Um, Arrow did some work on that. And learning by doing is one instance of increasing returns to scale. And for Arrow, at least increasing returns, whether it's in learning by doing or other processes, um, leads to market failures. But for me, at least, well, that that's just really in manual repetitive tasks, and that really doesn't have anything to do with new product designs, um, intangible asset creation, and the like that we're really talking about here. Mm -hmm. So we see firms like Google and Amazon, they're taking advantage of increasing returns, right? Um, software is increasing returns. There's zero marginal costs, and you can um, take advantage of that. But that didn't lead necessarily to market failures. So Hal Varian, for example, in his classic information rules, details some strategies that markets can still succeed in an increasing returns world. Um, similarly, Arrow worked on inventory issues, mm -hmm. which again is static reallocation issues that look a little bit more like um, the social welfare function than you know, what we're talking about in technology development. 
So I, for me, at least, it seems like um, Arrow was kind of thinking in, in these kind of static reallo- reallocations. That kind of goes back a little bit further to what you were bringing up, which is really nice about the socialist calculation debate. I kind of see it in that terms as well. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think, you know, bringing up the case of, you know, today's tech companies is an interesting example because, you know, one of the things that they do is they act in kind of almost a a quasi-governmental kind of way. I mean, acquisition is the name of the game, right? I mean, you have a little company that develops something and they can see all the little companies that are developing things and then they decide what it is that they want to snatch up. And and the little companies develop their products in the full expectation, the hope that they're going to be snatched up. And so that's kind of the way that that works. So it is, after a, a form, a, a centralized way of going about things. Indeed, but it would appear that the logic of disruption, right? Like these companies are actually still pretty young. They're still led by their founders for the most part. And they're able to actually kind of go outside and be risk. They remember building a company from nothing, right? And they're And they're more willing to kind of like, put something outside and do moonshots. They're doing a lot more moonshots where they're not creating this five or two completion financial plan for a lot of these things. And then and they're buying up t- different technologies. Mm-hmm. Again, they're not prematurely buying them up, right? There's VC investors mm-hmm. that are allowing the startups to kind of, based on conjecture, usually it's not consensual, right? Mm-hmm. You're not getting this huge government bureaucracy or even the bureaucracy of Google or Amazon to decide upon who's going to be the winners and the losers. They just kind of let the ecosystem go about it. And then whoever, just, whoever is actually putting out products that seem to be useful, um, it, they might buy up. But I think a lot of the philosophy of those firms is actually create a platform where you're not taking all the value, right? Mm-hmm. You're allowing third-party developers and third-party consumers to kind of you know, create value through your platform if you try to lock it down too much then you won't get that benefit of increasing returns necessarily because people aren't coming to you at, if you're taking too much value out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, they've found a way that, you know, through VCs, you know, through the incentive of ultimately being acquired, uh, they've managed to find a way to incentivize development. Now, I mean, there are people um, who say that actually the the systems become a little bit sclerotic, that actually there's not a lot of innovation out there in the same way that there was, say, a decade ago. I'm way out of my wheelhouse now. But, I mean, I think the point that I've made is that, you know, they for, you know, things like software, they've come to a, a way of encouraging people to develop products and to fail with products in such a way that uh, that people do that. That, that people do engage in development uh, w- without having to be supported by, you know, the government. Uh, with military technology, of course, that's not the case. Now, of course, we've seen things, you know, relatively small-scale cases like uh, the uh, DIU, um, where they're trying to, you know, kind of get into that model a little bit. Now, of course, you know, that's a long way from, you know, weapon systems, but, you know, they they see a certain something there that they want to, you know, try and capture whether or not, you know, that'll become a significant model within the defense R&D ecosystem is another matter, but it's interesting. Yeah. So I want to stick with software a little bit and bring it back to Alchin. So we talked about how Armin Alchin was advocating that you 
get contractors into research and development and pay them in research and development and break the link between R&D and production. Um, and then you can have a centralized decision-making process in production because you have more information and then get people into production. They don't have to necessarily be the same contractor as the guys in R&D, but you know, have R&D pay. Don't make firms only get their profits through production and sustainment. So he was looking for a clean break. Um, but today you hear in the software world and the Defense Innovation Board kind of points to this a lot, that software, quote unquote, is never done, right? Um, there is no kind of research versus research and development versus production. Obviously, there's not, I mean, they call it production, but there's really low marginal cost of reproduction. Most of it's in operations, but usually they talk about in the agile process, um, you don't have that clear distinction. There's continuous capability development. So you're developing, you're putting it in operations, and you're going back and forth very quickly. So whether it's in real operations or test and evaluation, some kind of operational test environment, you get that continuous feedback rather than go through your development cycle, have those, you know, that diversity of different um, developments that are done, that are proven, and then make your decision for the production. Um, it's now kind of like that distinction has fallen apart a little bit, at least within the software world. What do you think about um, the collapse of the distinction between R&D and production? Is that just software or where will that be going in the future? I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, software is one thing, you know, the economics of, you know, that industry or something that I'm just not, you know, sufficiently expert in to speak with any degree of authority. But I do know that, you know, I mean, uh, when we look at historical R&D trends in the United States, uh, private R&D is dwarfing government R&D by this point. I mean, it, it, it's huge. And a lot of that is in that software world. So whatever it is about the economics of software, uh, the IT industry generally, uh, it lends itself to uh, promoting R&D. There are other areas, you know, if we look at R&D policy, like the uh, the energy sector is a big one, wherein there's actually very little R&D that gets promoted by you know, the traditional utilities. Now, we see a little bit of um, things like, you know, venture capital funding in areas like uh, fusion. There, there are people out there who think that nuclear fusion can be done in a way that doesn't lead through the, uh, the giant eater tokamak uh, experiment in France that they're now starting uh, to put together over there. Uh, but on the whole, you know, there's, it's just not been a successful model. And so when we look at R&D policy, Congress, uh, on a bipartisan basis, has come to the conclusion that, you know, the government should be very much involved, not just in funding basic research, but also in funding uh, activities that aid in commercialization because industry just simply won't support it on its own. And this, during the Trump administration, has been a very big deal because the Trump administration has taken the opposite tack. They've said we should shut down organizations like ARPA-E. We should substantially cut back on the R&D budgets in the Department of Energy's applied R&D offices, energy efficiency, renewable energy, nuclear energy, fossil energy. Uh, and so forth, uh, because those are things that should be done by industry. And they've had hearings on it, and they've had people who testify. It's like, no, it just it simply doesn't work that way. These projects are not going to get done uh, unless they're e even through venture capital. Uh, and 
like I say, uh, Congress has responded by uh, giving these uh, offices in the Department of Energy more funding than they've had at any time since the 1970s uh, when the department was created. Uh, because, you know, whether for petty reasons or for rational reasons, I think, you know, probably a little of both, um, the, uh, members of both parties who control the purse sp strings have become convinced that that's just the way energy, the energy sector works, that it's just vastly different from the software sector. And, you know, you can go into the reasons for why that is, but mainly it has to do with the fact that, you know, it just takes a lot of money to create uh, a power plant prototype. It takes a lot of money to create a defense systems prototype in such a way that it doesn't take to develop a piece of software that never truly uh, is complete. Right. Um, I think that's interesting that you hear this a lot that, you know, we're making advances in bits and software, but not so much in hardware. And some of that might be because like VCs, it, you know, when you hear hardware for a VC, it seems like they kind of run in the other direction. Um, it's harder. There's a lot more um, capital that needs to go into it in upfront costs. Mm -hmm. But it seems that you could break these things down again back into the sequential. Like, how do you um, create test articles on the smaller scale and rapidly kind of like build those up at the earliest increment? Because it doesn't need to be a five to 10 year cycle in all cases. You know, some things are good for incrementalism. I think uh, you made a good point earlier that you do want a f the same firm to do R&D and production if you're kind of going in the incremental route. And I think Dassault um, in France for aircraft manufacturing was a perfect example of that. They would outsource everything, but they would not outsource final assembly because that allows them to do those incremental upgrades. And they would get radically different um, designs just from the same airframe structure. So they went to the, uh, the VTOL aircraft and um, even a swing wing, which was basically an evolutionary development. They didn't completely redesign uh, the platform, which is interesting. So I wonder, going back to, you know, the post-World War II era, when they really were thinking, hey, how do we define our objective 5, 10, 15 more years out and then work back to that objective rather than kind of getting on this incremental feedback loop? Um, do, you, do you think that there's still that legacy that's kind of built into our institutional structures that favors the guy who says, oh, I have all the answers. Here is some technology in the future that I'm targeting. Um, by the time you get there, it might not look like that. Everything might have changed, but really just to get the thing started was the whole point. And how do you justify getting something started if you say, well, I'm going to kind of try this thing out and then I'll kind of adapt and incrementally move around. But, you know, trust me, give me some budget. That doesn't really sound so good to the top decision makers. They want it to be sure, okay, did you shop it around to all the offices in the military and, and the labs? Did you get them to sign off? Do they think this is a good idea? And then once you get the consensus, then you have a unified front basically to leadership to get those the, the flow of funds going. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, incremental uh, developments. I mean, you almost, you know, from a government standpoint, I'm not even sure to what degree you need a policy for that kind of thing because it's something that, you know, there's strong incentives for it to happen, 
you know, out in industry on its own because, you know, they're the people with the, the equipment in place, they're the people with the know-how to do it, uh, and, you know, presumably they can make a, a certain, they're in a position to make a certain amount of investment necessary to make those things happen. I mean, I remember, you know, again, I'm a historian of science by background, and I did an oral history with longtime director of um, IBM's uh, research uh, division, who's actually an operations researcher. His name is Ralph Gomery. Uh, and he, uh, you know, I mean, he, he spoke very clearly about the fact that, look, you know, in IBM, when you're developing processors, they're on their own, you know, cycle, and we're doing our own thing over here in IBM research. And if we want what we do to uh, impact what they do over in product development, you know, we have to adapt to their cycle, and we have to, like, insert ourselves in at a very certain point in the product development process, because they're just going to keep going through about their cycle. It's never going to be a linear thing where we're developing uh, a product, you know, a, a prototype here, and then all of a sudden, you know, we, we throw it over the fence, and, you know, they commercialize it. Because they were the ones doing, you know, the incremental development, and they were the ones who were working on more long-term types of things. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like in the government, at least in the Department of Defense, you have like these mod accounts, for example, and they do do a lot of kind of like incremental advances that are relatively small scale um, on an existing platform. I really like the point that you brought out. If it were truly in that incremental fashion, then industry is more likely to do it. And they have by far more um, R&D total than, than the government does. I was looking recently, like Amazon's 2018 R&D um, expenses were rivaling the Navy and the Army's, their RDT&E accounts combined, mm. right? So that's a lot of RDT&E that they yes. were doing. Um, it's not clear exactly what they're doing it on. But again, some of them are actually moonshots, right? Um, but you'd think the government would have an advantage in being able, because they have, they're not looking for an immediate return necessarily. They're not demanding the same things that a VC would want, like, I need a, I need some kind of turnover here. I need to see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, even though you, you do hear about VC looking at things at more of a portfolio level, right? They expect some things to, to lose. Some things will, a couple of things might pan out, but those couple of things might be 10, 100, 1,000 X returns. And um, you'd think the government would be really looking for those 100,000 X returns on on new kind of like blue sky research. But it seems that, again, Whereas like in a VC, all you have to do is basically, you know, get one person to believe in your idea and you can get some investment. Whereas with the government, you need to shop it around to 50 or 100 people and then get the consensus. And anything that you can get a consensus on probably isn't going to be that thing that you're going to get 100 or 1,000 X return. Because if so many people thought it was a good idea already, why wasn't it already pursued kind of that strain of thought so what do you think is the um, structural impediment or do you think that's an incorrect analysis that I just gave that government really does kind of go out on, into the blue and try really new things that are intended for application so like DARPA does a lot of really really great things but then we always hear about this valley of death and it's like well does the warfighter eventually 
does it, does this make it into a major systems program or not? Yeah, I mean, I think when you're dealing with the government, I mean, in a lot of cases, you know, there's the same distinction between the the technology and the research angles. So, I mean, if you're pitching uh, a research project to the Department of Energy Office of Science or the National Science Foundation, you just have to prove, you don't have to prove that it's a product, you have to prove that it's a viable research project. And so then you can get funded to do that. And that will be, you know, sometimes to government officials consternation in areas like materials science you know that that'll be the same thing that you do your whole life you just keep applying for research grants to do different research projects and you never hand off to you know the engineer and you know one of the things that you know some of the technology transition offices in government try and do is try and get you know the researchers talking to the engineers a, a little bit more and at least in certain fields but you know you don't if you're working on something blue sky it's blue sky from a re- you know from a product standpoint but from a research standpoint it might be uh, a perfectly if you will incremental research project even if it's a long way away from a practical application yeah it seems like this it was interesting that you talked to the former director of bell labs but bell labs and park I, ibm oh ibm Oh, okay. Well, I but mean, it, it's a, kind of the same idea, though, right? I mean, this was from the era of you know the big monopolies. Uh, you know, uh, when they had a lot of opportunity to invest in these laboratories. And actually, another thing that the IBM research director told me is that he doesn't think that that's actually a very viable way of doing things. That uh, that it really shouldn't be on industries to support their own research labs, even though he was the director of one for a long time. Yeah, it seemed that they had problems with that handoff, right? Like, that's where they really fell flat. And at least in the, the Xerox Park example, it took uh, Steve Jobs to come in, see it, and then go do it himself because they weren't taking advantage of all these things um, that they were developing that could have been the first PC, but it just it was never developed that way. I don't know if the government's any better at doing that, right? Like, so if the government creates a lot of basic science stuff, then it's up. It's still up to industry to come get it, right? But it is the idea that it's kind of open. Like for example, I read an um, an F four Phantom book that the aerospace industry back in the forties and fifties had a, a patent pool, right? So you had all of this information, these spillover effects, and people could learn from one another. And if the government's funding it, you know, hopefully this would get out. But they have a, a lot of times there's security concerns, and it doesn't get out. So it seems that, well, if the government's doing this, then where's the mechanism for that transfer coming from? Yeah, I mean, they're always trying to to work on that. I mean, you know, they, at DOE, they have the Office of Technology Transition. They're trying to get... They already do have uh, companies working quite a lot with national labs to prove out technologies and use, you know, the resources that are only available at national labs, like, um, again, for you know, energy technologies for grid testing, for example. Uh, you can do that at the National Renewable Energy Lab uh, out in Colorado. And that's uh, something, that, that's a way that the the labs, they don't come up with the kernel of an invention, they facilitate its transition. And, you know, they're always trying to do more of that. I mean, there's always bills in Congress for trying to, you know, get 
industry people to work with the national labs and you see that in like the the national defense authorization act too there will always be some kind of you know we're going to try and teach people in the uh, dod labs to be more entrepreneurial for example and i, I don't know i mean it's to what extent it actually works or not i i couldn't tell you I, i'm not close enough to it but certainly it's a, an ongoing concern yeah definitely i think that's going to be one of it's one of those things that no matter how far advanced we get in technology and science, it's always going to be one of those problems that will manifest itself in one way or another. How do you how do you kind of take a scientific result and, and then apply it in an engineering framework? But I always kind of see that, well, if the government is trying to handle this, and yes, I mean, I hear a lot of the same things, Department of Defense, that... There's a lot of discussion about how do we transfer the technologies, but it seems going back to this kind of rational, idealistic kind of method that they had after World War II, you know, the government structurally is not really able to follow through, even if the the people are saying that they want to do this, because I would say that the, the budget structure was set up in that kind of like you have to simultaneously solve a bunch of equations. So like if you have a program-oriented budget, the whole point of the program budget is identify your outcomes, optimize those outcomes, reduce redundancy, reduce competition so that you're optimizing the, the allocation of funds to the most things that are of the highest probable use. And you pointed out that Charles Hitch, who kind of was one of the founders of this uh, planning, programming, budgeting system, the program budget as implemented in the Department of Defense. He said, well, yes, he wants to apply neoclassical economics to um, defense, but he doesn't want this Walrasian simultaneous equations, These all these simultaneous pie-in-the-sky equations kind of going on. But Aaron Waldofsky kind of argues back that in order for the program budget to work, you have to have those simultaneous equations because the, the program output of one program depends on, on other programs and how they progress and how much money is available. So you can't separate when you're thinking about a program budget and how to allocate things in the future, especially when you're locking in five plus years and that reallocation is very difficult. Um, it almost always does come back to that simultaneous equation part. So even though we would like to think that oh, there's these scientific results that are kind of blue sky and people are coming up with these interesting things and then we can kind of like put them into technology in different ways based on engineers' conjectures about what the future may hold and then kind of let a competing process whittle things down as more information is created. In reality, the, the structure of decisions in the budget and the budget is what makes the world go around. So General McNarney after World War II said that. He was like, you know, money is not only what makes the world go around, it's what makes militaries work, right? You can't get anything started without the budget. And if that budget process does kind of require these um, coordination throughout the bureaucracy, then it is almost the least likely place that you'd want a transition to be happening. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about Charles Hitch, I mean, his watchword was sub-optimization, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, he would say, look, we can look at various places in the budget where we're more or less making decisions uh, on an ad hoc basis. And frankly, we could probably think through things. We could do tests or whatever to make decisions more rationally in these particular places. But in terms of the whole tableau of our budget, you know, there are a lot of 
I don't know, what have you, coefficients in there that we're, we're simply never going to know. So we'll make decisions more rationally in the places where we can make them more rationally. And then even though in principle our budget is expressible uh, in terms of an interconnected series of equations, you know, we're not going to paste all the pieces together in that way. We're going to do, you know, the best job you know, that we can, you know, on the basis of guess or intuition or, you know, some quasi, you know, rational method or something like that. And so, you know, I, I don't know where I'd go with that, but I mean, I think that that's more or less, you know, the way things have to work is that, you know, however you're trying, maybe I'm kind of trying to loop back to, you know, how we originally started learning how to learn, you know, the military was learning how to learn during World War II, you know, you're always kind of trying to learn how to learn how to make various components of your decision-making process better. And it turns out that it's, you know, very complex and, you know, that there are a lot of different ways to do that. You can develop expert committees or you can do it mathematically or with a computer program or something like that. None of those things are ever going to solve your problem, but they can solve little pieces of your problem. Things that you weren't doing so well before, you can do better now. And there are other aspects of it, you know, that will always, you know, be, you know, congressmen worried about their district or, or something like that. And, you know, it's when you're trying to be more rational, you're always doing it in an incremental way, uh, you know, a little bit better than before. I, I don't know if that answers your question, but... It, uh, I mean, I think it does, because it, it seems to get back to what Herbert Simon calls, like, satisficing mm -hmm. as opposed to optimizing. It was always kind of hard for me <laughs> to draw that distinction, because it just sounds like you're just optimizing on a smaller problem or something like that. But then you still have the decision problem as to what the problem it is that you're sub-optimizing on. Yeah, or uh, Arrow actually wrote, uh, very late in his career, he wrote uh, some kind of reminiscence on Simon. He said, well, isn't that optimization of another kind? Like, you've decided that you can no longer afford to do your search, so you make a decision that optimizes both on the basis of the value of the decision that you're making and the economies that you get from not doing any more search or something like that. And I think he was being a bit playful in that, but it's another way of looking at it. It doesn't solve the, the grand conceptual philosophical problem or, you know, what have you. Yeah, and that for me gets back to what I was saying about the acquisition of information because it's like in order to kind of know when you have to stop one thing and, you know, pursue another um, and then choose what optimization to actually do, whether you even do an optimization, you still have to have some model in your head about what the relevant costs and benefits are and that they're quantifiable. At some point, it comes, it kind of devolves back into a cost-benefit analysis to some degree. Um, and, you know, once you get into a cost-benefit analysis, that satisficing view of it still seems like optimizing to me. It's just now that you're optimizing, you've narrowed your focus. Yeah, I mean, one of, you know, just jumping off of that, um, uh, another paper of arrows that I'm extremely fond of, it was, uh, I think it came out in 1957, it's called Decision Theory and Operations Research. And he's kind of just musing on this sequential view of things. And he starts talking about the actual model building process in that way, not making economic decisions, but being an economist, you know, saying, he was speaking specifically of inventory theory, but it went for, you know, modeling in general that, you know, you can always 
gain something by deepening your analysis or by you know making your equation more complex but there's always a point where you're going to have to stop and you know the decision about when to stop is in a sense uh, an economic decision in and of itself that you have to decide i know enough i've gained enough from the economic analysis that i can now make a better decision and i'm not going to get much from doing further analysis Ultimately, I think from the Alchin point of view, it almost like doesn't really matter. That's a personal or a or a subjective view as to when you should stop and when you should not. And you can't really know in advance when to stopping a certain line of effort and just integrating or keep going is actually going to be a good idea because of contingencies about the future states of the world and the like. So it could seem like someone who's suboptimal at the outset turns out that the environment selects for him, right? So then it's only after the fact he looks like he had been optimizing his decisions, but like maybe someone at the at before with different types of information would have found him foolhardy. Mm-hmm. So it's um he I think his view would be well, you know, you have these different people with their different models and however they arrive at their their conclusions it's almost it doesn't really matter the environment will select for them you filter them out and that process of filtering is the one that we should be focusing on more than the process of deciding what is right it's almost like the more of the poparian falsification versus like the epistemological view that we can know what is true. Yeah, and it's no mistake, uh, no coincidence that uh, Bayesianism has its uh, resuscitation in this exact same period. I mean, they were, you know, exploring things. It's always subjective, right? I mean, it's, you're always making a decision based upon, you know, the the information that's available to you and your conception of the situation, and so you know, it's a, an inevitability. Uh, and I think you know when we're talking about uh, arrows. Rand R&D papers to bring the conversation back to that, you know, it's nice to focus on filtering mechanisms. I mean, another thing that grew up in this period and that uh, Philip Morosky and Eddie Nikah have written on recently is uh, market design. Uh, so that's very much the development of, uh, you know, a filtering mechanism, creating some, you know, taking uh, an inflexible environment and turning it into something where people can, you know, trade and, you know, however that works out is better than before because you know they didn't have that option before to select whatever is best for them or whatever they perceive is is best for them and so you know you're really just dealing with it on a situational basis in some cases it's good to uh, try and design markets in other cases you know arrow says that uh, you know markets simply may not be possible and he felt that way about military R&D and one aspect of my paper that we haven't covered is the fact that he applied these same ideas about information gathering to healthcare Mm -hmm. where he also thought that there were extreme inabilities to create markets you know surrounding that and so you have to design insurance products in such a way that account for the inability of patients to make market decisions because they can't gain information because they don't have the expertise because they don't get sick 50 times in order to decide which doctor actually does the best job at curing their illness you know and so that was uh, another area in which he was applying this same strand of thought to thinking about other ways of structuring institutions uh, where he felt that markets weren't possible so i want to stick on that one point and bring one other thing up before we wrap up here. So Arrow did do some good 
stuff with the healthcare and he brings up the asymmetric information part of, of healthcare, which does seem similar to defense where you often have contractors that have more information, especially on the technical side than the government. So you have this information asymmetry problem. And then you also have an interesting issue where like the consumer, the one who's benefiting ultimately isn't the one paying, right? So um, in healthcare, you have the insurers that are paying and they're kind of negotiating with the providers. And then in, in the military, you have users who really don't have, they have some say at the very beginning, right? They'll like write a requirement and then hopefully 10 or 20 years later, um, they get something out of it. But ultimately, they're not really making a lot of these uh, decisions. It's kind of handed off through the acquisition process and given back to them. So what kind of uh, similarities or differences do you see between the healthcare markets and the defense markets, which, you know, there's been some kind of talk about, you see that these are two sectors that have been having lots of increasing uh, price growth over time, whereas in the economy at large, a lot of things are coming down. So these seem to be the stagnating sectors. Yeah, I mean, certainly Arrow drew a very, even though he applied kind of the same frame of information gathering to them, he viewed the sectors as being very different. In uh, defense R&D, the uh, problem that he was trying to solve is to incentivize development and to incentivize information gathering because decisions will ultimately better the more prototypes you develop, the more engineering you do, the more information you gather about defense systems in general or specifically. Uh, in the case of healthcare, Arrow didn't view information gathering as the goal uh, because it was something that was impossible for a market actor, the patient, to obtain. You had to design a system in which uh, they could gain access to healthcare without having to gain information about the healthcare system. And so he looking at the the healthcare system as in the United States as it existed in the early 1960s, he noted that there were things like medical schools and um, wherein basically the level of care is standardized. And he noted that doctors tended not to compete for price or offer varying levels of quality for varying prices, i.e. to engage in market behaviors because it made them less creditable as um, as providers, uh, in a sense. So there was a, a he regarded it as a, a as a, a tendency towards homogenization in the market, simply because it couldn't exist as uh, a market. And so, I mean, even you know, here in the twenty first century, you know, Arrow, who only died quite recently, was still arguing for detaching. Uh, health insurance from employment, for example, just because you know the you were trying to force market mechanisms onto something that was just never going to work as a market. Now, to a certain extent, you may argue that insurance companies take the place of the patient in terms of the informed consumer, but you know, I mean, that's the model that we have, and it doesn't really seem to be creating efficiencies. But here again, I mean, I'm moonlighting and as a healthcare economist, which is something I'm most definitively not. Uh, so I'm, again, a little outside of my wheelhouse. But that was the way that Arrow seemed to view things. Yeah, so we have market failures to some degree in healthcare and in defense. But when I look back on defense um, back in the 40s and 50s, you really had 
like Navy with its multiple bureaus and the bureaus were their own funding line item in the budget. And it was their chiefs who went to go justify their budgets. Same with the army and their arsenal system under the technical services. Um, and they were rivalrous with each other, right? Like, so they were both pursuing competitive designs and funding them independently and you would kind of see some kind of information spill over between the two. Um, and over time, you know, it would seem that when you had multiple buyers, so Peck and Cher in their classic 1962 book were saying, hey, there is this multi-buyer nature of defense, at least as of right now. Um, it did seem like there was some kind of, I don't want to call it price discovery, but there's some kind of competitive aspect to where it seems more market-like, where you have multiple buyers facing multiple sellers, whereas what we got in the 1960s and beyond is more of this monopsony structure where you centralize the budget through one kind of a system, and then you rationally allocate it downwards such that you don't have these rival aspires. That was the whole point throughout the 50s, Charlie Wilson, all of the secretaries of defense, besides basically um, James Forrestal, who was the first one, all of them were saying, we need to reduce com competition between the services. In the Bureau of uh, Ordnance, for example, they were pursuing missiles. The Bureau of Aeronautics, they were pursuing missiles. They're both in the Navy. That seemed like it was very irrational, but it potentially was, in one way or another, something market-like. So did you, do you see that there's some kind of market-like structure possible in, in the government sector? Or is it that once you have government decision-making on the one hand, um, it, it really kind of nixes that, that kind of concept of a market? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a couple points there. I mean, I think that, you know, particularly, you know, my book looks at both Britain and the United States. And if you look at the structure of the government in Britain, it, it tends to have a tendency towards uh, attempts to rationalize it from time to time to rearrange all the boxes on the chart so that they make some kind of sense. In the United States, it tends to be much more historically contingent, and so it's a lot more chaotic. Certainly in, you know, in science policy, there's never been a department of science. You know, there's never been a unified government R&D policy so that you have the Department of Energy and the National Science Foundation and the National Oceanic mm -hmm. and Atmospheric Administration, DOD, et cetera, et cetera, all funding science, and they do so, uh, you know, there's a lot of redundancies in that, and so that, you know, uh, you know, if you want to look at, you know, maybe NASA isn't doing so well at controlling its big projects, but the DOE Office of Science has actually gotten really good at it. You know, you have models that you can port from one place to the other, and it's nice to have that, you know, if you want to call it market-like, uh, you know, I think that that's okay. On the other hand, you know, if we look at the situation with uh, defense in the 1950s, you had a series of... Um, you know, you had the, the services, and they each wanted to be in, have as much territory as they could control vis-a-vis -vis the other services. And so you had weapon systems that were that each one was working to justify. And you say, well, we definitely need this system, and we definitely, you know, it could be useful for that purpose, and it'll definitely work because our engineers say it'll work. And you didn't have any central means of adjudicating those kinds of claims. You wound up with what Eisenhower complained about, which is a military-industrial complex. It just grows and grows and grows because you don't have any means of, you know, resolving between, you in a sense invest in everything because you don't have a rational ability to say no to anybody. 
And so in a sense, you know, even though defense still grew in the 1960s under Kennedy and Johnson, even though, uh, you know, McNamara in a sense seems like the next phase of the military industrial complex in some way, you know, is his job to try and bring that under control and to, you know, create a mechanism whereby things get eliminated if they're not working. And so, you know, I mean, uh, you, you do need some central means, you know, some way of determining before you have, you know, a fully realized acquisition program if something's not working. And that was not something that really existed in the 1950s. So it wasn't, even though it had the redundancy features of a market, it didn't have, and to a certain extent, the competition features of a market, it didn't have, you know, that Alchian like natural selection mechanism working for it. So it wasn't in any real sense uh, a market. That's a good point. I think when Robert McNamara came in within the first few years, he was credited with canceling more programs than he had started, right? Uh, you have the longer process to start through a systems analysis that he demanded, and that slowed program starts, but it was supposed to create better programs. But he was also pretty willing to to cancel a lot of programs like um, like the old ramjet engine, um, nuclear missile de- delivery, the Regulus. So I think that's a very fair comment. Is there anything uh, that you like to end on here or any literature that you would recommend for further reading? Well, um, that's a great question. Um, I always benefited from my interactions with the people in the history of economics. Uh, there are a lot of people over in Europe, but Duke University is kind of the the local center for that in the United States. But, you know, I mean... Mike Munger? Um I don't know. I mean, I just know their Hope Center. I mean, they do these conferences annually. Okay. And that's what this paper is part of. But, I mean, it's really like oh, great. Um, Beatrice Cherrier and Jean Giraud over in France. And I, I've always been very impressed by them. Uh, you know, the history of science and technology um, is, you know, that's my home. That's where I come from. Uh, and I don't know if, you know, I mean, uh, David Edgerton in the history of military R&D, you know, he wrote a book called England in the Aeroplane back in 1990, thereabouts, that was very influential, and Warfare State, uh, which was about the UK in 2006, uh, which uh, that's been certainly very influential of me, uh, on me, and he's written a recent book on uh, the rise of Britain as a nation between empire and the EU. Uh, that's, of course, very current. So I, I have to praise David Edgerton. Uh, as far as things that are, you know, directly pertinent to what we're talking about, you know, it's just I, I've gained from, you know, reading broadly, but I don't know if I can point to anything in particular. His book is Rational Action, The Sciences of Policy in Britain and America. Will Thomas, thanks for being on Acquisition Talk. Uh, thank you very much, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.